Welcome back to the Dear Katie Survivor Stories podcast. This is Katie Kessner, your host. As many of you know, I was sexually assaulted myself at age 18 in college. I appeared on the cover of Time Magazine, and I've completely dedicated my life and my story to raising awareness about sexual violence. For this episode, we are truly inspired by the power of sisters, sisters and their love. Under the best of circumstances, that love can be completely life-altering. And it certainly was for the Rutgers professor, Salamisha Tillet, and her beloved and equally gifted sister, Sherazad Tillet. Salamisha was recently awarded a Pulitzer Prize for criticism in the New York Times. So we're going to talk with her about their relationship as sisters and how it literally kept Salamisha alive during her recovery from her own sexual assaults. You'll learn about how they protected each other and how they also birthed a long walk home and a story of a rape survivor and their projects helped to elevate the experiences of black women and girl survivors of sexual violence. So please listen in as Claire Kaplan and I talk with these two amazing activists who have broken new ground in so many ways. And this is Claire Kaplan. Before we get started, we want to remind our listeners that sometimes the discussions we have can be difficult to hear, especially for survivors of trauma. So we encourage all of you to care for your safety and your well-being. Please reach out for emotional support from family or friends, a counselor if you have one, or a hotline, whatever resource is important to you. Additional information and resources may be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll share that address with you at the end of the podcast. And thank you so much, Clara. And truly, our episode is going to wow all of us, I think, including myself and Clara. We are so honored and pleased to have with us Shahrazad and uh, Salamisha. They will tell you a little bit about themselves and their own bios, but they are truly pioneers, activists, um, inspirational, and we have so much to learn from both of their journeys and their vision for all of us as survivors and those working to end sexual violence. So welcome, welcome. Um, Shahrazad, could you kindly share a little bit about yourself? Yes, my name is Shahrazad. I'm the co-founder of A Long Walk Home. I am also an artist and a curator. Lovely. And uh, Salamisha, what about yourself? What's your uh, bio sketch for us? Sure. Um, well, I'm Salamisha Tillett. I am a professor at Rutgers University. Um, I'm a director of an art center here called Express Newark. I'm a writer. I'm a mother um, and an activist as well. Fabulous. Well, I, I think that our listeners, yes, we're so pleased. Thank you so much. And, you know, you're, we can't wait to learn a little bit more about your work um, with A Long Walk Home. But let's start out as, you know, our listeners come to us first and foremost in their, their passion for ending sexual violence and often as their own survivorship and their willingness to support and attempt to try to end sexual violence. So, you know, I, I think our backstory and how we decided to choose this passion academically or uh, with, you know, philanthropy or with our business selves, what brought you each to this vision where you are now? So what was the kind of 
first and second steps and what were you know moments in your life that just made that indelible imprint that you could you know never turn back and you had to go on this mission what about uh Salmisha first yeah thank you first of all just I'm honored to be in conversation with you both um, and your work continues to guide our work. Um, and I guess I'll start back in the 1990s, um, Katie, in the sense of, you know, I'm a sexual assault survivor. I was sexually assaulted in college in 1992 as a first year student at the University of Pennsylvania. And then again, when I went on a study abroad program to Kenya in 1995, and so I was an activist um, on campus around issues of racial justice and gender equity. Um, but I think my experiences, my devastating experiences with sexual assault um, and really the culmination of it when I was in Kenya, um, part of my healing was becoming um, an activist around these issues. Uh, when I was in college, Take Back the Night, you know, hadn't, it, it got, uh, had a resurgence in the 2000s, but it didn't actually happen, you know, it was there in the 70s and then it disappeared. And in the 1990s, when I was on campus, we didn't have Take Back the Night events. So I didn't really have a clear place to tell my story as I was healing or trying to heal, except for the Women's Center on campus. And so there I was able to, uh, after graduation, uh, write for the feminist newspaper and, and disclose my history of sexual assault uh, and find safe spaces uh, to disclose and to, to talk to people. But in general, you know, my campus wasn't, I didn't think a particularly safe space to deal with these issues. And so I, I feel like through my healing um, and through my finding my own voice after college, and then my telling my story to my sister Shaharazad in 1997. So I graduated in 1996. I was assaulted in 1992 and 1995. And then I told my sister Shahrazad in 1997 what had happened to me. And that really was a turning point, both in terms of my own trajectory as a survivor. Um, and I didn't know that at the time, I was just telling my sister my trauma. And then also um, my trajectory as an activist around these issues. And so I think that moment of disclosure, that moment of a sharing of my trauma with my sister, um, not only eventually helped save me, but also change the kind of activists and the kind of survivor I was going to be. My background, um, well, you know, I, I kind of was chronologizing, like, doing how I became an activist. I would say it's similar to Salamisha because we are sisters. Um, and so I, I was thinking about how I developed more so my voice um, in terms of breaking the silence and, and being a sister, um, a biological sister that was going to help Salamisha heal. Um, and so there's three like ages that I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about that were very pivotal moments in my, my uh, childhood, um, five being one. Um, and so at age of five, uh, our mother, um, we were growing up in Boston at the time, and my mom um, experienced uh, sexual assault by a stranger. And so that was just like a really, I think we think about whether there's some like pivotal transformational moments in my life. Um, and so I don't know at five if I actually understood the weight of what that was. I think that was protected about it. But what I did know was the impact that it had, right? Like something 
disruptive happen to our family system that then in her healing process um, made us relocate to Trinidad and Tobago to live with my dad. And so like things that I knew, like I, we weren't going to going back and forth. Like I didn't know the culture of Trinidad and Tobago, um, you know, going on a plane, me and Salmish at five and, and Salmish at eight at the time. Um, but just really always knew like the impact that sexual assault has. And I just kind of grew up with like understanding that, um, understanding that, uh, what it means to have public space be unsafe, what it means to, um, really have something disrupt every single part of you. Right. And so that's just like a, 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 a at a young age, just kind of always known that. But knew also, uh, it wasn't, you know, you know, when my mom was sexually assaulted and, it's, you know, it's such a different time was she felt like she, and, you know, we were very young kids, um, just kind of grew up with the silence around it. So having had this disruption, I think, as a kid and really lo- relocating and, and then having to travel then back and forth between Trinidad and then my mom never was to return to Boston again, moved to New Jersey. So we went back and forth between New Jersey and Trinidad as kids. Um, and then ultimately, um, returned when my brother, uh, younger brother was born. And so that was just like a really pivotal moment and just kind of how we grew up, um, something happening, but not knowing how to like really talk about it or process it, but like def- definitely impacting generationally, right? And so like as a secondary survivor, um, understanding how that impacted me. And then I think the, the second age, I think that I would, I would reflect on is, is 17. And so at 17, um, we were growing up, um, with our stepfather and he was very abusive in terms of domestic violence to my mom. Um, and she had the courage to, uh, ultimately end that relationship. But at 17, I was, uh, I got, I was able to do the senior project and I think it just kind of changed my life in terms of going from like personal stories to then helping others. You know, um, I decided to volunteer at a domestic violence shelter at the age of 17. Um, and I, at then I was doing, um, I was able to do art with the children that came to the shelter. So it was a, it, it was a shelter that I, I volunteered at. It had a different storefront and you would go into it and it looked totally different. Um, and just hearing the, the cases and working with the children and using art as a, as a tool, but also being a young person that now had this experience or these experiences with gender-based violence, being able to like help someone, you know, um, became like a really source. Like I'm 17, but I could still like help someone that is going through something that I went to, you know, it wasn't really into like therapy um, later on that I really, really was able to kind of transform that to understand what that pain was and, and really kind of um, really help. Um, and the last age I think is our, is when Salamisha told me her story when I was 19 years old. And so I was able to do something different. I think transform that five-year-old girl, and that 17-year-old girl, and now I'm 19, like in college, 
I really wanted to like not be in silence anymore about um, sexual assault. When she told me this, I, I was, you know, we're very, very close. <laughs> and you'll hear that um, during this podcast, we're very, very close. And so, but I'm also her younger sister. And so I kind of grew up with Salamisha kind of, you know, just taking care of me. And, um, you know, I realized how hard it was for her to tell me. I was, her, it, it was the first family member that she told. And um, I really wanted to be there for her. And I remember like sobbing and uh, as a college student and um, and she, her like, you know, as an older sister, like making sure that I was okay. Um, but I really wanted to like be there for her in some type of way. And so I, I stood in silence actually for a whole year around it, like trying to figure out ways of, of how I could support her. You know, I went to therapy and, um, and then I got to spend the summer with her and I really got to see how sexual assault impacted, um, all different aspects of her life. And, but what I got to also see is how remarkable the human spirit is and how she's surviving it. And the, and to this day, I think it's like one of the most courageous anything anyone could do is really help themselves. Right. And so. I was honoring that. I saw that, like that person who was going to therapy was fighting for themselves, right? Like in trying to, even though this horrible thing happened, take control and re-transform or rebirth this new self, right? Um, And that I was in awe of. Um, And so I asked her if I could document that, that journey, Um, and if I could go in that way, it was like, you know, I was using this camera as a way to like really just connect and be there in a way that I couldn't do with words. Like, I want to show up for you. I want to be there for you. And um, this project as like a, you know, a junior in, in college, like really allowed me um, to have a voice when I couldn't really speak that and really kind of just be there for her and also turn it back on myself and 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 document how as a significant other i was being impacted as well i've seen some of the the pictures from that project because it's in the film rape is um and they're so powerful and if you didn't know the backstory maybe it wouldn't have the same power but it's they're powerful as they stand alone but but knowing that um has that particular project did, did you have a show at the at school or how did that did you show it in public spaces? So we, I, I'll, the first time I did it, it was through a social documentary class. Um, my second photography class ever. And I, I had this amazing teacher at the time, Steve Hart. Um, and we decided that reaction that I had in the class, like how so many people were sharing their stories um, about sexual assault made me um, really kind of want to do this further. And, you know, I remember my teacher saying, you can't stop here. Like, I think other people need this, you know? And so I then transformed this intimate project that me and Salamisha, you know, did um, a photo series into a multimedia performance uh, and asked people that were close to me, um, you know, I grew up, my mom is actually a singer. Um, but just that influence of music and Salamisha was using all these different things to help herself heal. I 
we wanted to kind of transform it, not just from a photography series, but into a multimedia performance where incorporated her like poetry, which is in rape is, um, and dance and music. And so that was like my senior project that I kind of, um, and me and Salmisha were in school at the same time. She was at Harvard and I was at Tufts University. And we just kind of invited like all our people there. And we had this show for like three days, um, like three different nights. Uh, and it was full. And so that, uh, that made us not want to stop this. That was like, uh, how do we then, um, as even as college students, like allow this to kind of tour um, and be in multiple spaces. So this was the birth of a long walk home then. Mm-hmm. So exactly. Salamisha, how was it for you um, going back just slightly to see the original, you know, project? I mean, how did it feel for you to see uh, that? It, it was really weird because, uh, you know, think about the late nineties uh, when you know, before camera phones and before selfies um, to have showers, I was walking around with a camera that was using film um, and because it's such an intimate project, she was, and she asked and I agreed uh, to photograph me in therapy or I was really into kickboxing at the time um, or just my apartment. And I was so immersed in the world of healing uh, that you would see uh, stickies on my mirror, in my bathroom that says like, um, Oh gosh, what does it say? Love yourself, Sarah. Oh, I am beautiful. I am beautiful. I would say I am beautiful. Or erase negative thoughts. Erase negative thoughts. Um, okay, yeah. So she remembers. She took the. And then I was also starting my relationship with my partner, who I'm still with um, uh, at the time, and and he's an introvert, and so that was also. And then you know, part of my healing was also being in this new relationship, and so Shahrazad, <laughs> it's, it's you know, it's, it's an access that perhaps is a, a, a part of youth where you're like, oh my God, my sister. And then my therapist agreed. They're like, okay. Like it was also experimental um, in terms of both uh, documentation and art, but also in terms of therapy. So I think it was, um, I don't know. I was a very, by then though, I was a public survivor in the sense I had published my story in the, in the feminist newspaper at, at Penn where I went to undergrad, as I said before. So I was, and I went to women organized against rape and I um, had started being part of like a, an, a group there to support boys and men. And so, um, so I had already started my activist sensibility around these issues and then Shahrazad um, started documenting me. So that's what I mean. Like my healing and my activism were so interrelated. They're not very separate in the sense for me in terms of my surviving um, sexual assault. I think the activism um, helped me uh, believe that a world without violence was possible, even as I'm dealing with the, the very real violence um, and trauma that I had experienced. But it was weird, you know, so that was one thing. And then the performance itself, though, was a different truth because part of the challenge um, is, in my case, being a, a victim of, of multiple sexual assaults was just hearing the totality of that story and having people and having people trust and believe that and so when we tell, do the performance, the very story that I wrote in the feminist newspaper becomes the narrative that shapes the show. So it's me reading that um, or, or doing that narrative that's the, the opening part of the show. And then the show really is about healing. So that's the trauma. And then the rest of the, the, the journey is um, mirroring my process of, of healing and, and, and hope. 
Um, so that was unusual again, because, you know, we'd never seen anything like this at the time. Um, someone being so public about their sexual assault, the images are really quite beautiful, but they're also very intimate. Uh, we did series of nudes, um, series of, of healing, um, pieces where, uh, uh, think in the early stages, I know we added more pieces over time, but my relationship with my partner, a picture of us kissing. So it was a very intimate uh, experience back then. Um, so there was a risk involved, but also I think the level of healing and release, like for me as a sexual assault survivor, you know, after the trauma, it's the shame. Well, I, I always say it's like the shame and the self-blame that's so suffocating. And so every time we've done the performance, there's less of that that I have, right? There's a release of the story into the world, but there's also a release of all of those those experience, that, those feelings that really weren't mine in the first place, right? That, that, that was put on to me, but that I um, internalized as a result of the trauma. So it was really cathartic and also a little scary. And then, you know, you just, you keep on doing it and more people started sharing their stories. I mean, people, professors are sharing their stories with Shahrazad. So many people would just come forward and they would see themselves in that story. And I think that was the power that we understood so early that even though, yes, it's my story, but there's something um, so uh, important about people being able to speak this truth and then release it and then heal. And I think that's why, you know, I, I was chosen to do this work um, in terms of helping people heal. And obviously Shahrazad was, was chosen much like the two of you, uh, Claire and Katie were chosen to do this work. So, And maybe, um, since we have a few minutes left, can you talk to us as part of that, what's happening with the work you've been doing and what do you see moving forward? Yeah, well, I think one thing we're working on is um, transforming uh, Soars, which was Story of a Rape Survivor, is the name of the performance, into a documentary fil film. Like uh, you all, um, we've grown up in this movement. You know what I mean? Like it, it's a movement that, obviously has had different waves and cycles, but we we came of age in this movement to end gender-based violence. Um, and so you, and you don't, you know, you may choose how, I always say I chose how I healed, but I didn't choose this trauma. And so I feel fortunate to have been able to have Shahrazad, but also Claire, I feel like I used to see all those emails. You, 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 all those emails. I mean, you still have the, the listserv. Like I would get them all the time, and it was just, you know, those are the things that like sustain you because you see people organizing around the country. And then I, I think I met you when I came to UVA uh, years ago for the Title uh, Nine conference. And so I'm just thinking of and to, to point to to what Katie's um, quite, um, you know, just very intimate and, and very. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm sitting with this idea of, of sisterhood, really, because I think it has informed so much of the work that we do. Obviously, shares on our biological sisters, but I think as a result of this work, we have found a community of um, activists, um, community of advocates, and com a community of other sisters who have been, and brothers, right, who've been doing this work for, for decades now. And I think part of our documentary wants to pay homage to that work, right? Like before Me Too, even before Title IX, right? Like those were, these are important flashpoints um, for the movement, but but there was a, there was a, 
you know, I sometimes think that between the, the 1970s and the, the emergence of a kind of these rape crisis centers and the Take Back the Night movement, and then in the 2000s with Title IX and now Me Too, there was this moments where there doesn't feel like there was a lot of uh, organizing. And yet there were people who were organizing. You just may not have known that they were doing it because we didn't have uh, social media. And so I don't know. I just feel really I want to pay respect to the past, actually, right now in this conversation um, and just honor that, you know, it takes a lot for us to even be able to do this conversation. There's so many survivors, so many victims of sexual assault um, where the, the, it's been so devastating that they can't even, they, they, they not only are not part of the movement, but they've never really had the ability to deal with the trauma. And so I just feel uh, very lucky to be a beneficiary of rape crisis centers, uh, to be a beneficiary of, 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 of different state coalitions that have been doing this work and of university um, administrators and, and advocates and women's centers that have been. So I want to say that, uh, hold that truth, because it's sometimes a history I think that gets forgotten. And I think for the future, I mean, where Cher can talk about the work that we're doing with young people um, that really grew out of SOARS, like we were taking SOARS performances all over the country. And what we were finding was not only that there were so many uh, college students who were coming forward with their stories of sexual assault, but that there was a real crisis happening in high schools uh, before people even stepped onto the college campus, they'd already been dealing with sexual assault in high schools. And and so that's kind of why we started doing work with even younger and younger people. And so I'll, I'll turn it up to share to, to meditate on the present and the future. <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's this homage that we're wanting to do with the source documentary of, of looking back, right, and paying homage to all those that have paved the way for us to do the work today um, and to also kind of, especially amongst of, of, of women and girls of color. Um, and to, and at the same time, looking to the future. So there's like the looking back and the looking forward. Um, and so we're very excited. I think about, I think that's what the why wakes me up every day, you know, um, is that this younger generation of young people and to figure out ways of supporting their advocacy and their healing at the same time. I mean, our, our work is grounded in healing. And so to have the two simultaneously work together. And um, so we've, we've been doing youth work for about 13 years and I'm just thrilled uh, and more and more thrilled of these new, this new generation that are the leaders of our time. Um, so I think about them as collaborators and how I could just continue to create spaces for these young girls um, and non-conforming youth uh, to kind of thrive and be leaders in our movement today. And do you have a specific organization that you're, that you are doing this around? Is it? Yes. Um, so we, uh, a long walk home, we created me and Salamisha as co-founders of a long walk home and, an organization that uses arts to end violence against women and girls. And so we are going on our 22nd uh, year uh, as an organization. And what for the, the young people, um, how is that happening? I mean, how do you do that? Do you work through the schools? Are you working through, you know, how are you doing that? Yeah, um, I just came from a school today. So very much schools are my mind. I haven't been to a high school since... Um, 2019, so um, pre-pandemic. But um, 
Yeah, we work with different, um, we partner up with different high schools or middle schools. And basically, we create cohorts of young people that we support and do long-term work with. Um, And so each year, we'll have a new cohort, but yet continue to support the previous cohort. So it's like a movement. So you you get new ones, but the other ones you continue to support, you know. Um, And so creating artists, activists, uh, cohorts between 12 and 17 um, that are, are coming together to really to end violence against women and girls. And this is in Chicago that you're doing this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. The, the, the youth, sorry, <laughs> the youth work is based in Chicago. Um, yes. I wanted to ask you, Salamisha, and then Sherazan on two fronts. Your advice for Salamisha, having been victimized once at Penn, and you said also in Kenya on your study abroad, right? I think you're, you know, obviously, or not obviously, I I think you sit with me that finding ways to help others heal from what we went through is a form of healing in and of itself. Sharing with a supportive sister, Sherazad's call on this podcast is a healing journey too. having her love and support means so much on so many ways. Um, But I also think if you could speak to just one other thing that always bothers me, when, when we as survivors sit in our experiences, I feel like always we can distill the sense, the smells, the tastes, the sounds, you know, the five senses. And I don't know if you were triggered by all or none from one or both. And what were those for you? And then I think what be a last cool thing to talk about, Sherazad, is while you don't have the two experiences of rape and violence that your sister does, do you have triggers? We've never talked about that, Claire, whether siblings have triggers. Yeah, I mean, I'll say two things. One, um, after I was sexually assaulted in Kenya, I returned back to the United States three days later. um, And shortly thereafter, and this was really just luck and, and location, I was able to enroll in an experimental treatment program um, run by a psychologist named Edna Foa. And so you had to be, your trauma had to have occurred within the three months of this program um, to be able to, to um, be eligible for treatment. And so I would, uh, and so it was like, she's a professor now at Penn and it's a very like, um, very, it's, you know, it's at Penn, uh, the hospital and it's at, at Penn, the, the university. But at the time it was an experimental program. And so the program was uh, to treat sexual assault victims for their PTSD symptoms um, the, up until that point, uh, such a treatment program was only used on uh, Vietnam vets. And so there was this, and now it makes sense, of course, like sexual assault victims also experience um, PTSD. But this was, again, in like 1995. So it was really, really early in this kind of thinking. And so for a semester, I would, and it's really kind of, uh, if you know Philadelphia, I would leave Penn's campus, go to the veterans hospital, 
um, and take a bus that would go between the Veterans Hospital in Philadelphia uh, to um, MCP, which is the Medical College of Philadelphia, Medical College of Pennsylvania. And I would sit in this therapy program with two therapists and I would tell my story over and over and over again, particularly my, my story of, of sexual assault in Kenya. And so part of the reason why they had me repeat the story was to treat these triggers. So, um, you know, as a sexual assault victim, um, as you were talking about, okay, there's so many ways in which um, a smell or a scent or a song um, can trigger and pull you right back to that moment where you're completely powerless and, and paralyzed. And so not only did I have to tell the story over and over again, I had to listen to the story over and over again. And then I would do these kind of like, what was I afraid of? So I'd be afraid of walking on campus and, you know, uh, at, at your sunset. And so I'd have to go walk on campus after sunset and document uh, a detail in a kind of a diary form how I felt. And so I think for me, being in that program at such a pivotal moment enabled me to be able to tell my story um, in a way that I think it's really hard for lots of survivors. Now, what it was a, an experimental program and it was uh, for a semester long. So what I didn't realize after I left that program was one, I still hadn't dealt with my other trauma from first year of college. So I still was, um, still in the, the process of healing. It helped me deal with like the immediate symptoms, like flashback, nightmares, things like that. But I still had the long-term trauma of both sexual assaults that I needed to deal with. And for me, one of the biggest ones and continues to be is struggling with my body image. Um, I, and we talked about this in the performance as part of my storytelling there, um, I suffered from body dysmorphia and eating disorders. And so those are kind of ongoing, uh, you know, if, if there's any stressor or any trigger still, I immediately start hating my body. And I didn't, that is a byproduct of, of sexual assault. I, I wasn't a girl. I was a very athletic girl. I didn't have a lot of body image issues, but I remember the moment that I started hating my body was the, the night that I was sexually assaulted in Nairobi, Kenya. And in that, in that moment, I just didn't want my body to be mine. And so that's something that I continue to struggle with. Um, I can't say that uh, and, you know, we live in a society where there's lots of pressures and policing of, of women's bodies. Um, but it's an ongoing uh, process for me. I think my recovery time is quicker. Um, so that's one, I think, in terms of just body image. And um, I, wonderfully, when I was pregnant with both of my children, I did not. But Shares, I, I remember thinking, you know, w was concerned because that is such a, it could be, a, you know, there's so much happening to your body that you don't have control over that it's oftentimes a, a big trigger for survivors. But I actually really embraced the, the experience and, and didn't feel triggered in that way. Um, but I also think another big trigger for me are these really um, big moments of, of injustice, right? When, you know, you have these cases that come forward in the news and people get away with this violence. It's still a trigger for me because I also went to the police um, in 1997. So after I'd come back from uh, Nairobi, Kenya, as I after I started going to therapy, I wanted to see, I was within the five-year statute of limitations in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania for my sexual assault my first year of college. And so I went to the sex crimes unit and I went to the DA and, and it was interesting because uh, the DA, assistant DA at the time told me he believed my story, but that at the time of the assault, no means no was not 
uh, legal definition of rape in, Phil- in Pennsylvania. And so just this idea that you can be raped and then not be legally considered rape when you in fact did not want the experience. I think it always is a trigger for me when I'm watching really like um, very national stories about people's experience and you just see this complete form of injustice. For example, you know, with the Cosby case, I think when, um, you know, he's found guilty and then that's, then he's released. um, That's a trigger. I mean, that's not, it's hard to say that's not a trigger at all. So I think I still have triggers. I mean, I, I think Katie, it's important to, to acknowledge even as far away as we are from our sexual assaults, that we still grapple with it. I think for me, because I've had a lot of resources, I've had a lot of time to work on myself, my recovery is quicker. And I know it's a trigger, right? Like, I mean, you know, that's like part of it. You don't even know. Sometimes people don't know what triggers are triggers. It just feels like our bodies and our minds are responding to a threat when sometimes it's a real threat. And and oftentimes it may not be. Um, It's a reminder of something that was once a real threat. So that's a good point that triggers that's always going to be, that's always something. It doesn't always, it doesn't just go away. Even if you learn to manage the triggers or the reactions to the triggers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Shahrazad, what about you? Um, yeah. I mean, in terms of uh, sexual assault, I feel like there's other triggers that happen in, the, um, in terms of just like growing, being in like in the skin of a, as a black woman. Um I was in terms of all the injustices, but uh, as a significant other, I really, I think this is the thing that led me to go into therapy. Um, I, I, I did therapy around like the childhood work, but really to become a little bit more solid as a helper to help others. I was, I was, when Solomon told me her story, I was really like experiencing some PTSD symptoms. I, I was, um, I remember being in a creative writing class and writing, uh, the story about, about myself and, um, you know, like, am I next? I remember the, the words I would like, you know, this happened to my mom, this happened to my sister. Like, does that mean that's going to happen to me? And just being like really like, fearful about my safety and I remember the comments on like the paper he was like this is this is good um but I think you should go to therapy (laughs) like you know um you know and so I can't imagine I don't really remember too much what that paper was but I remember it probably was like this really um I was probably full out in the trigger you know and and writing about it you know like am I am I next am I next and so that really led me to go to therapy. I also took RAD classes, rape defense classes, as a way of like trying to control the situation and, and reduce some of my fears. Um, and that was the original like soundtrack that we used on the, um, in the performance was like that, no, 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 you know? Um, but, you know, it like allowed me a training, you know, um, to, really allowed the verbalness of it, I think, was the most important thing I got from that, right? Because we can't sometimes control the scenario. Uh, well, we can't control the scenarios, but what, you know, um, but what we can do is like take some of that, the power of the words um, and, and, and really like, uh, I don't know, kind of tangle it off, but like the, the do, doing therapy and, rape defense class, those are like critical things I like really did try to do to reduce this am I next kind of, what does it mean to have this kind of history and then 
um, have someone so close to you. And then, you know, also people are telling me stories. You become a person um, when you do this work and you're saying, oh, I'm doing a senior project. You become this person on campus um, to hold these stories. It's interesting that you should talk about that because that, that vicarious trauma that you're talking about is so common. But most people who are family members or close friends or whoever to uh, survivors or people who have experienced trauma of other kinds, and then you bring in the other traumas you experienced that you experience every day, the, the trauma of racism or the trauma of whatever the other issues are that may impact um, knowing your mom had this experience, those things we don't even think about how they combine together and to affect our, our mental health until something happens. It's like a teacher writing a note on a paper saying, gee, I think you should have therapy. You know, it just those kinds of things that sometimes it takes another person to say, Hey, you know, it, it, I understand why that you're doing this, but at the same time, it doesn't have to be that way. And then, and the other piece of, of also occurs to me as you're both talking that, people who throw themselves wholly into this work or other forms of anti-oppression work experience high burnout. And I'm, I am wondering, in addition to the things you mentioned, um, Salamisha about, you know, triggers and managing them. Um, how do you maintain and keep your vigor as, as one person, a friend of mine said once, you know, how do we, how do you keep your vigor, keep your um, spirits going and, and so you can continue the work? What feeds your soul? Yeah, I mean, I think Sharon and I have, because we do the work differently, um, so we'll, we'll have very uh, different answers. Um, I guess I remember being in a conversation um, with, I'm trying to remember her name, um, from Columbia, and she did the protest with the, the mattress. Um, yeah, Emma Selko. Yeah. yeah, so it's Emma Selkowitz. We were... Um, and we were on a Melissa Harris Perry show and this was like right when she was at the, you know, the, the, the protest that she was doing was gaining a lot of uh, attention. And I remember speaking off camera and she was really concerned at the time that this would be the defining moment of her life. Right. Like this, like she's an artist actually. And so she didn't, she, it was impossible for her at that moment to imagine, um, how you can integrate the story into your life and then live a full existence, right? And so, of course, she was just graduating from college. Like, it makes complete sense. But I also remember thinking, like, it was interesting to me because I think for me, my sexual assault has shaped so much of how I do the work, how I do my academic scholarship, how does, does how I do my activism, how I do my creative writing. But I also think because I've had all these other spaces to grow and be and develop that it isn't the single most defining feature, um, but it's one of many parts of me. And so I think that's for me been a way of sustaining the work um, in a sense, growing the parts of me and then um, continuing to fuel um, my sense of justice and my desire for no one ever to be sexually assaulted again um, through my organizing. So I feel like I've been very lucky to find, like I said earlier, souls who's, who've been chosen to do this work or who've, who've chosen to do this work and do it in community and do it in family, as well as have this shape um, 
my work in other areas, but it not be the single defining part of it. I mean, that's, that's for me because I think I um, probably would have burned out by now. And also I just have like Shahrazad and, and a long walk home I mean, being in an organization that we co-created in 2003 and just seeing this blossoming of the movement, you know, part of it's like, we couldn't have imagined me too. We were trying to create me too, but we, we, and so I think that also just being able to witness this moment um, and there's so much work left to be done and there's so much more work to do, but I also want to acknowledge the fact that we are at a very different moment around these issues. And I think the work that we've all done together here has contributed to this um, unprecedented moment in human history. Um, so that's that gives me inspiration and that keeps me going um, as well. So I, Cher, what do you, what's your answer? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that was a good one, Talmisha. I mean, my, my, I don't think my answer is so far from your answer. I mean, I think that like community is really, really, really important to doing this work. Um, the sisterhood that we kind of talked about. And so I'm kind of like blessed to have all of these like mentors and mentees and have a community that I work with at a long walk home that is so um, grounded in care practices and, and, and humans, like, you know, like just us like relating and understanding um, where we are and having like real, like a family. Like it feels like, it feels like we've developed a real family of, uh, of some practices. And so I think um, that has sustained me. I think that art, like we do this work um, very holistically. And so um, part of that is like being able to go in in different spaces of the work, I think, is, like, really helpful, like, going into the art world, you know, um, and then going into gender-based violence world and going to a racial justice world. Like, that's all one day for me right now. <laughs> like, I've been able to go from high school to talk about sexual assault to then uh, go to end my day um, with, like, Black Lives Matters and, and, and talk about, like, some of the racial uh, injustices that are happening as well. Um, and then just like make sure that I'm going with like friends, like that, you know, like um, that I'm not alone going to these spaces and then being able to say no to something too, you know, like, oh, I can't do that today. So I've learned to like take off and uh, Salmisha has two wonderful little children that I'm absolutely in love with um, that give me so much joy that remind you of, um, you know, just to remind you, it's simple, like, like that this is, that there's more to this, you know, that they are like the future and give me so much hope. And so I just, um, able to kind of go in and out of these spaces, I think that are important to me and also nourish my creativity at the same time. Um, and so having that balance, I think of advocacy and healing and, um, of care and, so care personally, but also just community care at the same time too. So I think that's just really been, that model has been helpful for me. And I think we, we talked about this earlier. I think for me, one of the most transformational moments was our brother um, passing from cancer. Um, and that really shifted, um, I think, what I think like how this movement is here, but also you can leave it 
and you could come back to it, you know? Um, and really this made me ground myself in like what my values are, um, what's really important. And so I think if I have those things as my foundation and I, um, that, that other things don't bother me the same. <laughs> um, yeah. So you were essentially, Shahrazad saying that, that you sort of took charge of the things of how you wanted to do your work and that you actually had more control over kind of your responses to it and how you wanted to experience it instead of having those things happening to you and carrying you along, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Because I knew that life went differently. Mm -hmm. I didn't see that coming, you know? And that means I don't know when things will come. Um, and so that created a different purpose of enjoying the life that I have right now and being more in the present um, and more purposeful with what I do. All right. This has been an amazing Dear Katie podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, I close out for Claire to care for our survivors, our listeners. We're so grateful to all of you who joined us for this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories. And thank you to our guests, Salamisha and Shahrazad Tillett. You are amazing. Uh, and I know that for our listeners, if they, uh, as a result of this conversation, feel they need additional support but don't know where to find it, please visit takebackthenight.org for a list of resources and how to reach our legal support hotline. And you can also help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please share this episode with your friends. Please consider posting it on your social media and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by an amazing group of volunteers. So we thank you them as well. And thank you listeners for being present today. Always remember self-care is essential to healing and to thriving. <laughs>